makes you such a threat. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Joshua. Better wash yellow taya, watch yanke chante, wash tena page use up yellow. Le chante etaha, wogalake le unkipiki, he wash tello. I'm better ki le wash take Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands. It's good for all of us to be here today. Will be a good day. You are listening to First Voices Radio. Antiochus and Ghosts are sending you greetings and strength on the highlands of the Esopus, or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Esopus and the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill from the Red Lake in Anishinaabe Nation is the producer of First Voices Radio. And it gives Liz Hill and myself the honor of welcoming our new studio engineer, Karen Ramirez, to First Voices Radio, originally from one of the many Mayan nations near Puebla, Mexico. You can now hear us on iTunes Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices IndigenousRadio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. Elizabeth Woody is an executive director of the museum at Warm Springs in Warm Springs, Oregon. The museum is celebrating its 30th anniversary throughout 2023 with special exhibitions and programs. Elizabeth is an enrolled citizen of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs. She is of Yakima Nation descent and is, quote, born for, unquote, bitter water clan of the Navajo Nation. And she is an internationally renowned poet, author, essayist, and visual artist, also an educator, mentor, collaborator, and community leader. In 2016, Elizabeth became the first Native American to be named Oregon's Poet Laureate. Throughout her career, Elizabeth has led writing workshops, lectures, and has served on multidisciplinary art fellowship jury panels, several foundations and art organizations nationally. And we have the honor of welcoming Elizabeth Woody to First Voices Radio. I think we talked back in 2021 and we we talked about that COVID pandemic and how we were all dealing with that. I mean, nationwide Native people were dealing with that with our traditional medicines and our cultures. All of us experienced this tremendous amount of loss during that time, right? And it's good to reconnect with you. Actually, it is. And something that's been a mainstay 
with the people of Warm Springs Reservation. And that's the museum of Warm Springs that you work at is, again, a mainstay strength of our peoples is to remember who we are. So first of all, for our listeners, who are the people of Warm Springs and a little bit about the Confederacy they belong to, the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs. Would you tell us that? And it is an honor to have you again, Elizabeth, Two First Voices. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the museum. Um, the question that you asked me, of course, is an important one. Um, the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs, Oregon, is comprised of Three tribes listed as the Warm Springs, Wasco, and Paiute people. And the reservation, of course, and, and the uh, Confederacy basically was um, based on the treaty between the United States government and the middle in the occurred in Middle Oregon. There were considerable amount of negotiations, but the 10.5 million acres or 10 million acres that we were in possession of actually because as a you know nation uh, we treated with the U.S. and we have a reservation reduced from that to 644,000 acres one third of it which is timber the other parts of it is high mountain desert and of course has the Warm Springs River and the Deschutes River passing through it is connected to the Columbia River river system and this basin is huge and the Columbia River I think is considered like either the third or fourth uh, largest river in the United States. Now that's important because the, the bands and the tribes, you know, lived along the rivers. We hunted and gathered in these ceded territories and was basically removed from our traditional homelands onto the reservation. But also the Paiute people were moved later as prisoners of war from Yakima Nation to the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs. And that's why we have these three primary tribes listed, but there are many more tribes and bands that are in that listing that aren't named by that title. But there's distinctions between those three peoples. The Wasco people are, are a part of the Chinookan peoples that were in the middle Columbia River. Uh, they were considered, or we were considered superlative traits people uh, Lewis and Clark, of course, when their body of of uh, people went through, did not like the Wascos because they had to pay a tax for safe journey through the territory. And one of the uh, villages in the Columbia River stole semen, a Newfoundland dog that was with that journey. And my theory is, now this is just a theory, is that they heard earlier in their journey to the Northwest they uh, ate horses and dogs. And I think someone saw that dog and said, that's a good dog. I don't want that dog to be eaten and <laughs> kidnapped it. And when the, of course, when the soldiers all geared up to go and, and search for the dog, they realized that they appreciated that dog and they gave it back. And then, <laughs> yeah, well, there's that theory, but Warm Springs people are part of a different speaking. They speak a different language. Wasco speak Kikst. Uh, Warm Springs people speak Ichishkin, uh, uh, and these people, of course, were in the lower, they were in the basin, they were on the Columbia River, probably the most renowned village being Salila Falls, which was one of the longest continuously inhabited villages in North America. And this was a fishing village, 
at this beautiful falls that's been inundated by a dam in 1956. So we're all fisher people. Of course, the Paiute people are part of the Great Basin and Range tribal peoples. Their language is Numu, and they are a very religious part of a really large group of people. That's great knowledge. Even when I was in that area, I did visit Salilo Falls and one of the ceremonies I went into, and it was just like breathless for me. I I didn't want to talk about it because I just wanted to hold it, which I still do to this day. So, and then about 30 years ago, you all decided to have this a museum. Tell me about what a museum means to you as compared to what Westerners think a museum is. I think the community needing something is different than an institution of a certain government like the United States saying, well, these are the so-called traditional people where you, yours are, to me, it feels like it's more active within a community. Yeah, the museum was uh, opened in 1993, 30 years ago. It had been in conception way before then. The leadership in, in Warm Springs um, initiated uh, the building of the museum and the planning for the museum uh, during the time when we had a lot of enterprises we were considered quite modern tribes at that point. You know, we had the um, Warm Springs Power Enterprise. We had the uh, mill, Kanita. Um, and I think that uh, during this time, we were considered very wealthy. This is pre-casino days. Mm. And um, they allocated, well, you know, a large sum of money to purchase items from tribal members who you know, offered their items for sale, but also for the keeping of posterity. So they had a, a sessions committee um, who, uh, you know, acquired these pieces and decided those uh, what those pieces would be. And they collected everything over the years and kept them together. Now, the leadership said that we wanted to know, uh, people to know who we were, where we came from. And we also wanted them to know about us for the future. Because much of our negotiations in our during the treaty was to remain relevant and to be um, senior partners in the management of our usual and accustomed places. This includes fisheries. This includes huckleberry gathering, root gathering. We still practice our our um, beliefs, cultural beliefs that are are um, they were established in you know, a millennia ago uh, from the beginning of time that we take care of the land and we take care of our little relatives, which is these food sources. So the cultural items that are that are collected all reflect that status, the sovereign nation that reflects our history. A lot of the items have history attached to them. We have also a way to preserve our own truths through the archives. And the archives is still information as well as the collections. But we basically needed to have a, a space for people to understand our relationship with them, our relationship with the natural world, and our hopes for the future. You know, you talked a little bit about your successes over the years. And now I want to say, what about the challenges? What came after the dam? What came after the casino to recognize what really counts as this museum? Yeah. yeah. Well, the dam itself, when it when the Swallow Falls inundated, uh, they were the tribes were given some sort of compensation for it. And some tribes distributed it to their membership, but Warm Springs did something different. Uh, 
They hired a team out of um, Oregon State University, I believe, to develop a business plan. It was a 20-year business plan. And part of that business plan was to purchase these enterprises that were located on the reservation but were not owned by the tribes. So the mill wasn't owned by the tribes. Kanita wasn't owned by the tribes. And so part, so that was the plan, was to acquire these enterprises and to become managers uh, with the BIA of our forest land and our trees, but to mill those trees and sell them and, and keep them keep the business within our, border, our borders. Now, post-casino, we had, we were late to join the casino complexes, tribal complexes in Oregon, um, because we had, you know, a lot of reserve and we had a lot of income from other sources. But the thing that happened was the casinos that were in more urban areas, of course, prospered. And casinos that were built in remote locations like Warm Springs and Klamath, and I think, you know, other places were not so successful. So the casino is in a big economic driver for us. It's part of the, the holdings that we have. Now, what's unique about that is that the tribes, of course, didn't uh, rely on the casinos to make the decision to to start the museum. The museum was actually initiated by the community. And, and coming back to the museum and the idea of once it was built 30 years ago, you're, who, who would come? Because I grew up with the ideas that uh, they was always ask me. Uh, they would ask me that uh, non-native people say, "Can we come onto the reservation? Are we allowed to come onto the reservation?" You know, and I'm sure you've got that too from other people. And I say, "Yes, come visit." You know, things like that. So I'm, that's what happens there at the museum. Is it's just not for native people, is it? No, it's not. Of course, yeah. uh, we were blessed with having Kanita open for a long time. It's it closed. And of course, is now being reopened and managed by a another play, another group of people who are basically investing on it and being a partner in running it. So the museum was open to the public, and people, of course, that came in the first five years were phenomenal. They were really and still come because they enjoy the experience and they love revisiting the museum and they feel like they have been informed of something very important and significant. Because the history now in, in Oregon is of SB 13, which is a, uh, for the state, uh, is a mandate that American Indian history is taught in our curriculum. But much of American Indian history isn't or wasn't taught in yeah. any curriculum in the state and probably not anywhere in the Pacific Northwest. But now we have two instances of Oregon and Washington having the, these curriculums being mandated. So the schools came a lot. You know, there was a lot of people that came from local school districts, Portland, wherever people could drive to, because we're like two and a half hours from Portland now. We're probably three to four hours from Eugene, depending on which way you go and what time of the year. And um, so for us, this area is open to tourism. Central Oregon is a very popular part of the state. And we're located on Highway 26. So a lot of times people can stop here just on their way to Bend, for example, or if they're going to John Day or they're going to Smith Rocks. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have um, become a part of is this uh, route of, of beautiful landscapes. 
And the museum's located next to Shatite Creek, which is, you know, goes into the warm, the Chutes River. <laughs> I almost said Warm Springs, but no, mm. into the Deschutes River. Um, we have like really premium fishing along the Deschutes. We have also um, campgrounds on the reservation that people can come and camp at. Mm. You know, there's Indian Indian Park, which is fairly remote and has this kind of twisty road to get down to it. But a lot of people love it because it's not heavily populated and people come to go there and they see and hear the silence or what you think of silence, but it's actually filled with birds and animal life in the water. Um, there's also um, an open door for individuals to international travelers. We get a lot of international travelers who come here. Uh, we had a group of people from Japan and we had some people come from China recently. So that's also a real plus for, for us. And we encourage people to think about stopping and seeing us here at the museum. And it's probably the only time they actually get to see see and hear about American Indians from an authentic viewpoint. And <laughs> we were having a cradleboard class and one of the helpers who was our machinist, sewing machine specialist, took a break to go see somebody in the parking lot. And then she came back and she'd been gone for quite a while. And she apologized because some tourists had stopped her and asked her if she was really an Indian. <laughs> And she said, yes, I am. And they said, oh, can we take a picture with you? And she said, uh, she didn't know what to say, but she said, okay. So she's taking pictures with them. They're taking selfies. And I says, boy, you really ruined it for us. They, a lot of people think that we're kind of, you know, rebels and that we're, we're kind of wild. And there you are being nice. And you're just mm -hmm. tiny and petite and cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's she's, yeah. she's really mm. small, like about four ten, you oh, know, I don't know, 80, yeah. 90 yeah. pounds. <laughs> yeah, that's tiny. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So Elizabeth Woody, what what happens? Because we're we're you remind me that the, the smallness of some people's as adults, but the, really the small people are the children. What what's in it for them in the future? What do you see for them? you know, inheriting what our generations and generations before give to the, the children of the future? Well, the children of the future have a lot to to uh, think about and be grateful for. Most of the time we have, for example, a large population of young people under 28. Like most Indian nations, most of our population is young. And when I got my master's in public administration, my capstone was on STEM education. And what I found out through that STEM education project is I looked at all of the international test scores and whatnot of Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, because all of them have significant Aboriginal population and all of them have been colonized by the crown. Common language English. Uh, and what I found out was in third grade, all the students were at you know equivalent levels of achievement in these tests. These are international standardized tests. But every year after that, they dropped in performance until probably about eighth or ninth grade. And then there was a huge population or huge part of these students that dropped out and didn't go to high school. So even the high school numbers were skewed because that wasn't the entire population. Now this was common, you know, this, I did this, in 2012, 
when I when I did my capstone. And for me, when I went into the Warm Springs Elementary and and, and did a taught a workshop at third grade level as a writer for one of our partners confluence project uh, they were they had written a book and they had published a book in their class and was were selling their book and they were going to write another book and they wanted to know what to price their first book so we went through like a couple of days of this and they developed a business plan just through the work with me on their book what to sell it for who would read it they also had made the price for it enough to pay for the run that they have to pay for another run and to have some money left over for whatever project they wanted. So they were very excited about it. And when we were talking about the topic of their next book, uh, they wanted to talk about first fish and first kill. And these are third graders. And so we said, okay, we all know about first killer, first fish. Because I asked them and they said, yes, I know what it is. And, you know, we have a ceremony for the for them when they do that. And I said, how many of you have had your first kill? And boys and girls raised their hand. They had. They had gone out and hunted a deer. How many of you gotten your first fish? Majority of class had gotten their first fish. And I said, so how many of you had your ceremony? And then less people had it, but they all knew what it was. These are third graders. They're what eight years old, and they're already functioning as adults in a, in a yeah. sense. They were providers, and they were people who had gratitude for the fish and for the deer. They didn't see it as a trophy. They saw it as a responsibility and a relationship. They did not learn that from a museum, but they learned it from their families. Yes. And the museum supports it. Mm-hmm. We have that in our museum. We talk about things like this. We also have classes. We've had less classes in the last three years because of COVID, but also because we have staffing issues. It's very hard to staff. It's pervasive everywhere. You know, people, yeah. you know, they don't want to have a job for an income that isn't livable. And not that that's a problem for the museum, but it's a problem everywhere. So there's mm. just a, that, that issue. So those kids are going to grow up and they're going to be people who are going to teach their children. They're the kind of investment that we'd like to be making in the community, but we have to work with the school district. We're working with partners at the High Desert Museum and Confluence Project who have wonderful education programs, and we support them having materials, uh, reviewing their curriculum, just participating in the the decisions that they make regarding curriculum for Native children, Indigenous children. Mm -hmm. And so that's the investment I think the museum is a part of. We can't be the primary educators, mm. but we can be part of the system that that support that supports that system. It's very great to hear all this. It's, um, you're describing a living culture to me. That's what the, the the babies are. The children are now one day to be adults, and you know the museum will be almost there. Uh, for those who don't know who we are as Native people, uh, for other Native people to know who the Confederate tribes of Warm Springs are, which I happen to enjoy when I used to live out in that area. How do we find out about the museum? Is there a website? How do people find out? Well, we've become, through the years, a part of a tourism association in Central Oregon. There is American Indian um, 
native tourism that's located in Albuquerque. We have our advertisements that's posted in different uh, travel magazines. There's also the ability for us to get stories placed, you know, about the museum, things that are happening. And uh, there's a lot of popularity, I think, in good journalism. If we can connect that way to our public, that's really good. So we have uh, this 30th year anniversary. We really are going to be working more to get activities that people can come here and see. So this month, we're going to be um, opening an exhibit that's going to talk about our architect, Don Stastny of Don Stastny, was it Stastny and Burke? And I think our opening is going to be uh, on the 27th, but you'll have to look at our website. We do have a website. That will be really interesting for the public because he's going to give a presentation. But also we're going to have an exhibit that shows the community, shows the architect, and talks about the natural elements of the land that contributed to the design of the museum. Mm. Now, the museum was built in a very unique process. Don spent a lot of time meeting with committee members and meeting with the community here in Warm Springs. And he went to like places where he participated in the ceremony where you open the meal and the ceremony with a drink of water and you end the ceremony with a drink of water. Water is our first medicine and our first food. And so water was really important element for the museum. We're next to Shatai Creek, but we also have a water feature in the entranceway and we have a water feature in a permanent exhibit. Now, if you go to the museum at, at University of British Columbia in Vancouver, there's a threshold you cross when you enter the museum that was designed with help and collaboration of the uh, First Nations tribe that their homeland is in. So when you cross that threshold, there's like a, a decorated floor that's part of a story, a really important story for the founding of this nation. And there's a big totem pole too that you view, but it's, it's everything about that entrance is for that person, that human being to enter another place, another world, our world. And here at the museum, we have the same thing above the door. We have the word Twanat, which means to follow. There's, it's a lot more connotations to it, meaning that we follow our ancestors, we follow our faith, we follow our beliefs. And then, of course, there's the water, and then you have the uh, volcanic stone, and you have this beautiful, beautiful polished stone as part of the front facade. But they made it really clear to him that he had to be involved in bringing the land into the building. And also the structure of it is traditionally based on the longhouse, the teepee longhouse. Longhouses for the older days had tule mats. So they look like big elongated teepees with these mats on them. And also the wings that come off the building are like what the people used to, to carry their goods because they were nomadic and they went from their good place to the next good place. So these were like illustrative of carrying knowledge, carrying their material goods, carrying their, their home. That's what he's gonna talk about and what the exhibit's gonna try and, and portray. We have photographs, we're gonna have uh, recordings, hopefully from KWSO, and we're going to try our hand at doing uh, an interesting slideshow. Sometimes slideshows aren't that interesting. <laughs> mm -hmm. But for me, I like looking at pictures. So we're going to have, yeah. you know, we're going to go through the pictures. 
It's museum dot warm springs that little curly cue mm-hmm. dot gov. Okay, I'll look that up too. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you, Elizabeth Woody. It's uh, great to have you here, and congratulations on the 30th anniversary of the Warm Springs Confederated Tribes Museum. I think that's that, right. Uh, the drive along there from basically Portland, Portland, Vancouver. The Dells and then to Warm Springs, it's just, it's something else for me. I always remember that. So thank you. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, thank you. Okay. Bye. And thanks to Elizabeth Woody for that interview all the way from Warm Springs, Oregon. This is First Forces Radio. We'll return to you in a minute or so. My name is Teokasin Ghost Horse. Joyal by Jenny Lewis, the song Psychos 2023. My name is Teokasan Ghost Horse. Welcome back to First Forces Radio. 
and on to the second half of First Voices Radio. I'm honored to have both of you, Charles Lyons and Christian Poirier, do First Voices Radio. I want to introduce Christian as a senior member of Amazon Watch's team, having coordinated the Brazil program since 2009 and also working in the international solidarity campaigns to halt the construction of large Amazonian Amazon dams, excuse me, and to call on the global private sector to cease its complicity in environmental destruction and human abuses, human rights abuses in the Amazon. And I want to add to that uh, the abuses to Mother Earth and also a friend, Charles Lyons, who's based in Rio de Janeiro, who is a multi-journalist and filmmaker currently making a documentary film about former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. There's an article for Mongo Bay about the Yanomami crisis that was produced with funding from Earth Journalism Network and also Charlie, you're a senior consultant for the Amazon Aid Foundation. I just want to start learning more about the crisis in Amazon. It seems every time we listen to the Amazon, we can see all the pretty pictures but underneath that, there is this, this fear that the land is going away somehow. And and the more money we throw at it, is it true that will it really go away if we throw more money at it? But the concern that you two have, I think it's a basis for the prevention of more destruction in the Amazon, especially with the indigenous folks who are have been the mainstay of, of bringing that area to life, keeping it living and rather than what they are fighting against, the mining, basically the, the burning of the forest. And I would like to focus in on the disinformation that's coming out that a lot of people are believing believing the surface uh, news rather than, you know, the, the tree roots that I that I want out there so that people know that there's much more than what the, the mainstream media is coding. So let's start with you, um, Chris, uh, Charles, and... And then, Christian, please join in when you can. Uh, well, I just wanted to clarify, Christian has been uh, an incredible source and friend, I guess, for for 12 or 13 years when he helped me do a piece for the New York Times about the Bellamonte Dam, this massive third biggest in the world dam that was being constructed in Altamira in the North Amazon uh, yeah. region. And Christian is an expert on that area and then also the whole Amazon. Um, so we've known each other for quite a while. And he was quoted in this article about the Yanomami, which is in the northwest of Brazil. It's a different part of Brazil. But the issues are very similar. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Christian expand. Certainly, uh, you know, speaking specifically about the article that um, Charlie published on Manga Bay, what we've been seeing over a number of years in the Brazilian Amazon, particularly on Yanomami territory, but also on the territories of two other indigenous peoples, um, primarily 90% of the illegal mining that's taking place um, in, in Brazil's indigenous territories are on the Yanomami, Kayapo, and Munduruku territories. Um, and we have a long-standing relationship, a partnership with the Munduruku. So I've spent a fair amount of time in that territory, and I've seen firsthand the ravages of this horrific industry and what it brings to Native communities, what it brings to the waterways and the forests that depend on for their sustenance and well-being. Uh, and 
it's truly a, a crisis that has been unfolding, particularly under the tenure of the fascist president, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who allowed the expansion, um, unfettered expansion of illegal economies in the Amazon, not just illegal mining, but illegal deforestation, illegal fishing, land grabbing, um, and the intimidation and violence and murder of land defenders like indigenous peoples uh, that are so fundamental to the future of the forest. So the the article that that Charlie published, I thought I found to be very interesting and very important spoke about how while the government is talking about uh the, the lula government is talking about and patting itself on its back about uh, how it's driven out 90 percent of the illegal miners in um uh yonomami territory there still are um about 10 percent of those miners who are still operating there they're operating there with impunity uh they're using sophisticated methods um to continue their operations um for primarily gold mining uh, gold mining in, in the Amazon of this kind requires the blasting away of, of uh, you know, topsoil, um, the use of massive amounts of mercury to separate um, the gold flecks, uh, gold powder from um, the soil, from the mud, um, which then, of course, the mercury enters um, the ecosystem um, and, and poisons fish, poisons people who rely on these fish. Um, it, you know, this op operation also, of course, causes a, a rendering, a, a, a tearing of the social fabric um, in indigenous communities that are all, already very vulnerable um, to a, a range of threats, um, especially from land invaders. And we've seen um, the result of this in Yanomami territory uh, with, um, you know, a, a human rights, a humanitarian and health crisis that was driven by this this um, massive expansion of um, of mining. So where we see the government saying they've done a good job of stamping this out, what Charlie's article talks about is the ongoing violence. Just last week, a, a seven-year-old girl was murdered um, because of this, the occupation, the, 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 um, the, the invasion of these lands by illegal miners. So this violence is ongoing. Five, under, five other people were wounded by gunfire. Um, the violence is ongoing. The, the lack of security for these communities is acute. Um, and despite the fact that the Lula government has been doing important work to drive these people off, these, these miners off of indigenous lands, not nearly enough has been done. So that's what we've been speaking about, um, how the illegal economies are all intertwined, uh, how the uh, illegal miners are working with the narco traffickers, how the, the, the most powerful drug um, networks and, and um, crime families in Brazil operating on Sao Paulo are um, are getting into the business of illegal mining and laundering their their um, their, their drug money um, through the sale of, of legal gold. Um, so this is all extremely concerning for for the well-being of indigenous communities but also for the future of the forest and we'd all rely on the amazon rainforest for our well-being this is why amazon watch works so closely with indigenous peoples i mean it's one of the reasons we do this is because we understand that indigenous peoples need to see at the table they need to be have the right to live well on their lands live in security to carry out the work they've been doing stewarding the forest for for thousands of years um and Without without indigenous peoples doing this work, we need to look at indigenous lands as the best preserved lands in the world, by and large, 
um, indigenous lands, indigenous peoples, they are about 4% of the of the world's population and they steward about 80% of the planet's biodiversity. This is very true in the context of the Brazilian Amazon and the Amazon writ large. Um, and so when we see the violence against these communities, we're seeing a violence against Mother Earth, we're seeing a violence against the forest, and truly a, a suicidal violence against humanity. Um, so that's why I feel like looking at the issue of illegal mining is so critical today, alongside all of the other threats that face the Amazon and its peoples. But just for visuals, I'm thinking the Yanomami indigenous territory as um, is, is illustrated is along the southern border of Venezuela, is it not? That's correct. And, and Christian, you talked a little bit about, or rather, um, Charlie, you talked a little about in your report that the native people are suffering threats. But they're, they have funders, and I'm really interested in who the funders are who basically fund the miners. Well, I mean, that's that's a, a great question. Christian alluded to this through some very good reporting by O Globo, the Brazilian newspaper. It's believed that criminal organizations are seeking to launder their money from drugs into gold, which is a legal commodity, are funding the operations they're giving they're giving illegal miners guns and other weapons to scare and intimidate indigenous in that region, in the in Holaima, which is the state that's just south of Venezuela. It happens near the big city of Boa Vista. In fact, some of the recent violence has been just outside of Boa Vista, very plain view. And in the article, I point out that when I was driving with a, a driver to Pacaraima, which is the border town where the Venezuelan refugees escaping Madura are coming into Brazil, I saw numerous signs, at least five, which read Fora Indigena, out indigenous. And that kind of thing near the encampment encampments of some indigenous communities is incredibly intimidating. So uh, I wanted to point out one thing which was particularly upsetting to me is that in late January, when the world sort of took notice of the humanitarian crisis that had unfolded sort of quietly during the Bolsonaro era, and Lula had now come into office only three or four weeks in, there were big announcements of in the press of what the Lula government found, which was, you know, malaria, malnutrition, infant mortality, all kinds of terrible things that had been going on in the Yanomami community. It just struck me that for the last six months, even though the Lula government has, by all accounts, the best of intentions, that there's been no reporting, really, for a number of months. And the crisis is ongoing. These little, these recent spats of violence that have gotten some some news notice are just the tip of the iceberg. There's been continued conflicts, and that's one of the motivations for writing the article. Because I think these issues that happen around the world, not only to indigenous people but other marginalized groups, uh, deserve coverage year-round, not just when governments feel they want to validate their efforts. These efforts need to be ongoing and it's a very complex situation. 
Yeah, and I, I would add um, to the point that, that Charlie raises here around the financing and, and, and your earlier question. Um, it's definitely these criminal networks, but it's also legitimate businesses and legitimate entrepreneurs and their political backers that are letting this happen. There's a lot of support for illegal mining in Brazil's Congress right now, and they're trying to legalize this activity, even though it's a horrific uh, disastrous activity for uh, forest peoples. Um, it's nonetheless got a lot of support. We're talking about billions of dollars that are being extracted uh, from these territories. And another really important point to keep in mind is that um, Brazil exports the vast majority of its gold to the global market. In 2020, it exported 92 tons of gold. And it's believed through the work of um, think tanks in Brazil that about half of this gold is from of illicit origin. So half of Brazil's gold exports are illegal and they're coming from um, about half of that half is coming from indigenous territory. So 25% of Brazil's gold is coming from illegally extracted mines or illegally extracted on indigenous territories and causing this human rights and environmental crisis. And who's buying this gold internationally are countries like Canada, Switzerland, the UK, and Italy. And companies like the ones that we rely on, Apple, Tesla, Intel, uh, Volkswagen, they're buying this gold from the refineries in these countries. So we can honestly say that name brands, like the ones I just mentioned, are complicit in what's going on in the Amazon today. And they are funding by way of their business relationships. They are enabling this crisis on the ground. And that's work that we've been doing to trace this gold and we're soon going to be in dialogue with all of the companies I'm mentioning here and dozens more, including the gold refineries, to help them understand their role in this and how they need to stamp it out if they are truly going to be ethical actors. Christian, you mentioned the moves in government right now, the complicity, but also the moves in government to pass a law that would make these extractive activities of which, you know, gold mining is one of the major um, legal and uh, both of us have been tracking what's going on with PL 490. Maybe you could update um, T. Alkison's listeners about that, because you're probably more up to date on that than I am. Sure. Um, there's a there's an all-out congressional assault on indigenous rights, indigenous land rights that have been underway for some time, and this is especially acute under Jair Bolsonaro's government but it predated him and it's predated him and it's being driven primarily by the most powerful block in Brazil's Congress, which is known as the Ruralistas, the Ruralist block. Um, they're the ones who are coveting indigenous lands uh, for ranching, for the uh, expansion of soy cultivation and other uh, monocrops. Um, understanding this is one of the major frontiers that Brazil agribusiness can and should move into um, to continue to expand their profits at the at the expense of forest peoples, at the expense of climate stability, because uh, you know the expansion of these operations of agribusiness would be the uh, spell the death now to 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 the forest and to us all. Um, and the way that the for, that the ruralistas are pushing this uh, is through um, a series of bills um, and attempts even to rewrite Brazil's constitution. One of the bills is known as 191. 191 would allow for industrial activities in indigenous territories, including industrial mining and what they call artisanal mining, um, which to me is a euphemism for industrial 
illegal mining. And it's not small scale miners coming with pans and trying to uh, get gold nuggets out of the river, which is often how it's characterized. We're talking about major investments in heavy excavation materials uh, or machines, um, dredging up huge amounts of, of soil and causing um, the, the environmental crisis I'd mentioned earlier in terms of um, the, the soiling of rivers and the poisoning of rivers with mercury. Um, this is what Bill 191 wants to permit, and they want to, to legalize and, and begin to, to essentially regularize. Um, Bill 490, which was recently passed in the lower house of Brazil Congress, essentially passes a um, a legal doctrine, a dubious legal doctrine known as the time limit clause. The time limit clause basically denies the rights of indigenous peoples to their lands if they were not occupying them at the time that Brazil's constitution was enshrined in 1988. Um, we can imagine that after 30 years of dictatorship, when indigenous peoples bore the brunt of violence and displacement caused by the, the military dictatorship, primarily in the Amazon, that many of the indigenous groups that are trying rightfully to um, gain access and, and rights to their ancestral territories were not occupying their lands in 1988. They've, they're more recently returned to these lands. They've been fighting for these lands ever since. Um, so what the rural leases are trying to do is say, no, if you weren't on this land, not only are we not going to grant you rights to their, your own ancestral lands, we're going to actually reverse many demarcation, many titling processes that were um, already established because we can say that you were not there. So it's a full-scale land grab. That's what 490 is, and it's now in the hands of Brazil's Senate. It's in the hands of Brazil's Supreme Court to uh, whether they, they will permit this land grab and this full-on assault of indigenous land rights, which is underway despite the fact that the Lula government has begun um, to establish indigenous rights tenants that are so essential to upholding uh, these rights. So we see a push and pull. The executive is doing the right thing to, to a degree, but the legislative branch of Brazil's, um, in Brazil right now is wholly uh, anti-indigenous, wholly uh, anti-environmental, um, and is doing us all a great disservice. My next question would be the FUNAI, I think you call it National Indian Foundation. They have, don't they have indigenous women in the Congress? And how, how big of help is that? Or is just, is just for show that we're, we're including indigenous peoples where, and how much teeth do the indigenous peoples have in that Congress? Well, I mean, one of the things I wrote about in the article is Joenia uh, Wapashana, who is actually from Hoaima was the first woman, indigenous woman in Congress. Actually, I think she was the first indigenous in Congress, is now head president of FUNAI. But one of the things that she has been experiencing, and Sonia Guajajar as well, who's the head of the ministry, the indigenous ministry, is that in order to go and do the kinds of things they want to do to help the Yanomami, they need a more significant force to help them. And that recently came to pass with the authorization of the military, the army, the Navy to get involved in these operations. Now, what took it six months? I don't know. I don't know what the problem was there. But I do think that they have significant power. But as Christian said, the Congress itself is stacked against Lula. It's 80% or more against Lula. 
the ruralistas have enormous power. And that's why this Marco Temporal time frame is a very scary thing that's about to go on. Christian, maybe you want to add. Yeah, to your your point, your your question, Joachimina, about um, the power of indigenous peoples in politics. You know, as as Charlie mentioned, Joenia was the first indigenous woman elected to Congress. Um, then she ascended to the um, to, to lead Funai, and it's important to note that the indigenous um, agency, uh, federal agency Funai, uh, was never run by an indigenous person until now. Um, this is uh, an important uh, move that Lula uh, established, as well as creating for the first time an indigenous ministry, so a cabinet position for an indigenous person, which is led by Sonia Guajajara, a longtime friend and um, one of the most important indigenous leaders in South America and, and arguably in the world, I would say, um, for her, her longtime experience, her voice, um, this being so important. Um, so these are two very notable um, advances uh, for indigenous rights and indigenous voices in Brazilian politics writ large, as is the election of Celia Chacriaba. She is now the only indigenous voice in Brazil's Congress. And that's very unfortunate, but she is uh, a powerful voice um, and a, a young indigenous leader from the state of Minas Gerais, not not from the Amazon, but nonetheless, um, an incredibly important voice for all indigenous peoples in Brazil. And um, these three women uh, are, you know, part of a movement in Brazil that is one of the reasons why the Bolsonaro regime was not more effective at rolling back uh, human rights and environmental protections. The indigenous movement in Brazil is extremely powerful um, and is a, a, a check on um, the fascist tendencies of the ruralistas um, and, of course, of Bolsonaro and, and his ilk. We can't um, discount the importance um, and the power of indigenous uh, the indigenous movement in Brazil, um, which is created so much progress despite all of these threats but uh the threats are acute and um you know it's it's hard to say where things will uh will end up after you know the ruralistas uh, have their way uh, legislatively in these coming months well i want to thank you for both of you christian Poirier and, and charlie lyons and i'm going to include the fact that you know you both mentioned the fact of uh what I would consider terra nullius, there's no, they still consider that there's no native people there. In the UN, as my involvement back in 2007, they defined that the indigenous peoples, Native Americans in this case, have not the right to own but only occupy the territory. So it doesn't give us any footing, any any tree roots, any roots. It says that we can be moved at any time, and they designate that, you know, like reservations. And I know that's an ongoing problem or a solution for the governments of the West. And I think part of that is, you know, when I heard time limit clause, is our time running out for Native people? I think that's a sentiment I like to put across to people because here in the United States, people are feeling the crunch of economics. But people like Leonard Peltier, others folks are saying, welcome to the reservation, because this is happening to all of us now. But if we, we keep our eye on and our hearts with Earth, things will change. And I think I commend both of you for understanding that and, and supporting the indigenous peoples and to maintain their knowledge, their culture, their spirituality, and especially their relationship with the land. I want to say that. Is there any important points we have like that I, that you would want to bring out that I missed? 
I guess it's just that it stems from this ever-widening illegal gold operation, this hunger for gold, not only in the Amazon, but in many parts of the world, and the incredible destruction to people and environment that's a result of that. Absolutely. It's, uh, to me, that's one of the, the more important issues right now to, to be watching. It's, it's a more obscure issue. People don't understand how um, important uh, mining, industrial mining, but also legal mining is to, uh, as, a for, as a driver of deforestation. And also, as I mentioned, um, to rights abuses and to um, the health crisis that face um, forest peoples, indigenous peoples and other forest peoples. Thank you so much, uh, Tiokasen, for having us on your show. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Definitely. It's great to see you. And thank, thank you, you. Tiokasen, for having us on today. And I want to thank you all for listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Tiokasen Ghostors. We'll be back next week with more Earth news affecting all of us, and especially Indigenous peoples who are at the forefront on that land that we don't see. It's a very, very...